the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. We are in the process of continuing to uh, do a series on a book entitled The Kingdom from Creation to the Millennium from a colleague of mine by the name of Don Enavolson. And uh, we, where we left off last time, have arrived at uh, a chapter called Only Evil Continually. So we're going to attempt to try to do that chapter as well as uh, another chapter We're going to skip five, but we're going to go from four to six. So only evil continually, and chapter six is the limit of dominion on chapter six. So that's what we're going to try to cover today. And under the topic only evil continually, we're picking up where we left off, where unfortunately man voluntarily, through stealth and through deceit, handed over to a rebellious angel from a rebellion that began in the second heavens, as we see in Isaiah uh, 14 and Isaiah, oh, I'm sorry, in Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, 12, actually, and then Ezekiel chapter 28, I believe, at beginning at verse 14. You can see that the rebellion began uh, in the heavens, the second heavens, And so the problem that we have on earth is actually that as a result of an invasion of a spiritual kingdom into a perfect created earth that we see in chapters 1 and 2. And last week we talked about how man voluntarily handed over um, one of his mechanisms of being the visible image of God uh, to represent God's likeness and to be an image of God's likeness to the world um, through his dominion over the earth and fruitfulness in the earth. And all that changed when um, the enemy was able to uh, basically obtain authority, legal permission to operate in this earthly kingdom Satan didn't have any authority um, that God was going to give him. 
But he figured out that if he could somehow uh, get man's authority, and because man was legally given authority to have dominion over the earth, then he could operate with his residue of power uh, that he maintained even after his rebellion against God. And again, we discussed that basically the fallen angelic kingdom, especially Satan, that we see in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, didn't agree with God's plan to put man in charge over the earth to operate as a co-regent or a co-ruler with God. So, chapter 4, only evil continually. Man's fall was nothing short of a disaster. He stopped um, functioning uh, in his purpose to be the visible image of God, and he no longer even connected with that original purpose for which he was created, again, to represent God, to represent God's likeness by imaging God. So now he has no purpose. And for the first time, man feels shame. He um, feels and experiences fear and disgrace. And he is separated uh, physically from uh, his relationship with Father God and from even remaining in the garden. So although he lost his purpose of his essence to be in God's image and his likeness, uh, man still maintained his drive to exercise dominion and to be fruitful. But that dominion is going to become perverted and warped. And instead of exercising dominion, which when, when you're the visible representative of God and you're exercising dominion uh, over the earth, it shows its fruit in maintaining of God's order and the impartation of life to procreate and to continue um, the maintenance of life's continuance. And unfortunately, everything became warped. And without his original purpose of representing God, man begins to define himself now through dominion and fruitfulness alone. But dominion is going to become perverted into something different, which is actually more domination rather than dominion. Again, realize what has happened here. Man has lost his purpose, his original purpose, uh, with the fall, with the disobedience. They basically made an agreement, a legal agreement, with the fallen rebel angel, Hasatan. In, in Hebrew, that is the adversary, Hasatan. That's where you get the name Satan. And um, through that agreement, um, they've now become part of the problem. And God's original problem, what he has on his hands, is a spiritual rebellion, which begins in heaven and unfortunately gets transferred down to earth. And then man opens the access point 
to Satan having control and dominion over the earth. So, the direction of mankind became set. Unfortunately, that wasn't the direction that was originally intended by God. Um, the infection, it's a good word to put, an infection of self-interest and self-justification uh, replaced man's purpose to represent God. So it became all about inward-looking man to become basically his own God. And man's disposition to authority has fully changed direction. What was originally intended to have been a service to the world through man's dominion, um, assuming he still was connected to his purpose to represent God, uh, but what would have been a service to the world as man acting as a bridge, in essence, between heaven and earth, it, uh, it stopped, it ceased altogether to be a ministry, and it now became a process of self-justification. So dominion became domination. Ruling becomes an obsession with man. Um, with dominion becoming domination, the domination of creation ex- exercising the fulfillment of his role as small king of the earth. The theocracy that God had created was was shattered. And now man has changed his role of a representative. I, I say that represent on, on purpose to show that representative is we were to represent him. Um, he's now replaced God as king. And even though man um, de- has detached himself from God through rebellion, man never took back his delegation of dominion to man. Man still remains in charge, but unfortunately with a distorted purpose. So evil, unfortunately, begins to bloom. And I'm going to read uh, a page or two out of uh, the kingdom from creation to the millennium. This is uh, page 30. So what we see is, unfortunately, Noah carries the consequences of the fall. And as the world began to repopulate itself, um, even after the flood, the same problems emerge again. Nobody learned their lesson. Human beings, again, rejected their original purpose, which was representation of God, and they sought fulfillment of purpose through domination. And what happens? The new inhabitants of earth now settle on a plain in the land of Shinar. This is uh, Genesis 11, uh, verse 2. And they begin a construction of their new civilization post-flood. And this remnant of mankind from the flood is trying to make a comeback. They determined to build a city and a tower. And we see that in Genesis 11, verse 4. The first served as a response to the fear that they would be dispersed over the face of the earth. 
And uh, it's an interesting decision because since God's original command was to fill the earth, but there was a fear. And that tower that they were going to build uh, spoke to their unwillingness to any longer be the visible image of God, which was, as we said earlier, the original purpose of mankind. Now, this new generation had been born, after all, in the image, not of their creator, but rather of Adam, the first Adam, their ancestor. And they were more concerned with making a name for themselves and not representing God, rather than extolling the name of of a God that they thought had destroyed nearly the entire human race. So I'm just going to give a summary on page 31. What were the different motivations for building this this, uh, tower? You know it, uh, um, obviously, when you go to read the whole chapter uh, 11 of Genesis, the Tower of Babel. And a good summary is it was a way to establish man's reputation, man's fame, and actually even a desire for immortality, and especially to establish man's independence from God. It's also entirely possible that the tower was intended to be a combination type of structure which included um, astrology. Let's just stop there for a minute. The tower was going to be a very high tower. And um, astrology provided a means of accessing the heavens or the heavenly uh, through the heavenly host, the beings that were represented by the stars. And the advantage was you wouldn't have to deal directly with God anymore. Um, It was also designed to protect the builders as a defensive uh, mechanism maybe against this God who just um, wiped out the first generation of of man uh, because of the evil that flourished. And um, but also to provide an independent reputation. So their dilemma was as follows. The kingdom envisioned by God at creation required human beings who were created in God's image to exercise dominion or authority over the earth. Dominion was given for the purpose of nurturing a continuance of life. However, man chose to create instead his own kingdom, answering to no one but himself. And with that decision, man becomes aware of a need to vindicate himself, to, in other words, to justify his existence to make himself feel a purpose for his being. Man no longer derived that purpose from his original connection with God. So man now seeks out, um, goes on a course to infuse his dominion with a different purpose, 
Dominion, instead of being a mechanism to be a visible representation of the maintenance of God's order, the continuance of life because of man's dominion, Dominion actually, instead of becoming a mechanism or a tool for uh, exhibiting the nature and character of God, it now instead becomes the goal. It becomes absolutely vital that man proves himself to be God's equal, capable of ruling the world on man's own terms. In other words, man wanted to make a name for himself. And at this point, the innate disposition, the God-given disposition um, from God to man to have authority, has now fully changed direction. What had been a service to the world, man acting as a bridge between heaven and earth, now stopped to be a ministerial function and now becomes self-justification. Men are now fired up by the dream that one day they, as man, will completely control nature and thus they can be like God. So control, or or in other words, domination becomes the norm by whatever means necessary. And what's the result? Well, the earth has suffered, and as man uh, directed attempts to dominate each other, humanity has suffered. And all the ills of history began, such as war, abuse, slavery, starvation, oppression, poverty, the list could go on and on, all in the name of human dominance. So dominion, which was man's original tool uh, to carry out his purpose, to become the visible image of God, dominion becomes domination, which is manifested in man manipulating everything that can be manipulated. The destruction of everything that cannot be manipulated and later, the denunciation of anything left over. So in a phrase, the goal of humanity became not the representation of God and his character, but rather the domination of creation. If man can control it or destroy it or prove it valueless, without any value, then man begins to feel superior. And if man feels that he is superior, well, 
man now feels that he is in charge. Exercising dominion and domination and thus fulfilling his role as king, small k on that, as fulfilling his role as king of the earth. So the the government, the theocracy that God has created was destroyed. It was shattered. The amazing thing is that in spite of man's rebellion, though, God has never totally rescinded his original gifting of dominion. Man separates himself from God, but man somehow still remains in charge. And the calling of God, as we see in Romans eleven twenty nine, is irrevocable. All right, so I'm going to read a couple of pages to you. I'm going to page 51. And this is a reference out of chapter 5 in the name of the Lord. The general form of God's kingdom had not changed post-rebellion. To represent him, to be the visible image of God, um, man understands that they would have to listen to God. And Here's the problem. If you're going to somehow still be your, with your original purpose of representing God, you can't re- represent someone that you don't listen to or don't think you need to listen to. In order to do the original purpose of God, what's required is something called obedience. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, God told them, then you shall be my treasured possession. It's conditional. It's contingent. This is that was a reference out of let's see Exodus nineteen verse chapter nineteen verse five. So, what would become the most basic test of whose kingdom people would belong to would be this question. Who is to be attended to as king? Which brings up another question. Whose royal decrees would be obeyed. To go over an earlier definition that we discussed, by definition, a kingdom, in other words, the domain of the king, the jurisdiction of the king, by definition, a kingdom is a place where a king rules. Where God is obeyed, God is king. And where God is king, his kingdom exists. To the contrary, 
where God is not obeyed, he is not king, nor is his kingdom, or in other words, nor is his government present. So whom do people obey? In most cases, the choice that is presented is between God and themselves, which happened to be the same choice that Adam and Eve had to make in the beginning in the garden. And unfortunately, they chose to obey their own dictates and correspondingly ignored those of God. In that moment, Adam and Eve sought to take the place of God and thus they became king to themselves. So the most fundamental question that still today exists ever since the Garden of Eden is and <laughs> will remain in the future. And it, it always has been. Here's the, here's the question. Who is king? Who's running the decisions in our life? Well, to whom do we consult? Do we stop and say, oh, Lord, I'm presented with this opportunity. I need to have a second opinion. I know what I think, but I don't trust my own judgment here. Do we do that? Do we go to God? Do we ask him those types of questions? Do we tell people when we say, I want to pray about it, was that, is that just an excuse to you know, buy some time to something that we don't want to do? Or are we serious in saying, I'm going to bring this to God? I want to ask God what to, well, to weigh in because I don't trust my own judgment. And you don't hear that all that often. Oftentimes what we do is launch out, make our own decisions, and then uh, hope that God is a forgiving God and he'll forgive us and that somehow we can escape the consequences of our actions by operating independently from God. When we come back from the break, we're going to come back and talk about what is this limitation of dominion? How does it work? And how did it show itself in biblical history? See you back after the break. God bless. Welcome back. We um, have been discussing basically the impact of the fall of man and what happened after the fall of man to his original purpose. How did it get warped and perverted? And I want to proceed with um, the sixth chapter of this book, and it's entitled, uh, again, we're we're doing a uh, series study on 
a book called The Kingdom from Creation to the Millennium by Don Enov Olson. Don was a colleague of mine, and he was uh, one of five participants um, in writing a, a field manual called Kingdom Calling. And um, it was a combination of um, Hebrew authors, Jewish authors, and Gentile authors working together to provide a training manual uh, to discuss how does the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, work. Um, and um, I encourage you to contact us. Um, we have some copies available that we could get out to you. Um, everyone that we've heard back to who has started a small Bible study on this, it's only like 33 to 35 pages, has been amazed at how it has changed people and how they look at our obligation to facilitate the restoration of God's kingdom back on earth. It's a very Jewish concept. It's a circular type of uh, experience. Because what we're doing is saying God didn't make any mistakes when he um, started out with his first blueprint of what the kingdom was supposed to look like and how it was supposed to operate back in Genesis 1 and 2. And uh, in essence, um, we're doing the same thing that John the Baptist uh, introduced in Jesus the Messiah uh, when he came, and what he said he was there to do was to restore the kingdom of God. And that's what their message was when they first went out. They said, repent for the kingdom of God. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And uh, again, oftentimes uh, we think of kingdom being a location or kingdom being a place. Uh, but we discussed in some earlier shows, and you may want to review those, that kingdom is not talking about a place. It's talking about a government. We see that reference when, in Isaiah chapter 9, talks about the arrival of the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, um, who's, by the way, the Messiah to not only the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Um, and it says in Isaiah chapter 9, talks, gives him all the different titles that the Messiah has, but it talks about his government being on his shoulder. And um, kingdom is the domain of the king, the government of the king. And so uh, the book that we presented, Kingdom Calling, is all about the use of a singular prayer that Yeshua HaMashiach, that's his Jewish name, Jesus the Messiah, um, taught us. He only taught us one prayer. And it's all about the setting up of God's kingdom, the establishing, the restoration of God's kingdom. And that's a very different gospel. It's a very Hebrew, Jewish way of looking at things. Because when the apostles asked Jesus, for example, after he resurrected, they said, Where are you, when, when are you going to restore the kingdom back to Israel? They thought in terms of cyclical, circular reestablishment. And when you think about the fact that the kingdom as originally formed um, was stolen away uh, from us through deceit and fraud that we see in Genesis chapter 3, 
and that our authority was handed over to a spiritual rebellion, a rebellion and a rebel, Satan. And um, this whole reestablishment of the kingdom means that we have to take back territory. We have to take back our original inheritance. And we talked a lot last time about what was our inheritance. Well, it talks about the heavens belonging to one entity and the, and the earth belonging to another. And we see that in Psalms 115, verse 16. It says the heavens, even the heavens, you know, belong to God. But the earth belongs to the children of men. And we have to start looking at the Scripture with a little more indignation that we, what we had was basically stolen away from us through theft uh, based on fraud, based on a lie. It was a challenge to God's nature and his authority. And unfortunately, the first Adam and Eve um, bit not only the bait, but swallowed the hook, line, and sinker. And we've been paying the price ever since because their agreement to hand over their dominion, their authority to rule and reign over the earth, uh, basically has caused all hell to break loose, literally, in a perfectly made earthly creation environment in Genesis 1 and 2. So, um, we have talked about how the original plan of God was that man was to be the visible representation of the likeness of God and the way or the tool or the mechanism was going to be through his use of dominion of ruling and reigning the cre- over the creation. and But there is a limit to that dominion because there are some rules that God set up that are rules that don't change. These are rules on how the, the government of God operates. And we want to go over with you this... Chapter 6, The Limit of Dominion. And the example that um, is used by the author is David, King David. Now, King David's authority had a limitation. He's just using that as an example. Uh, King David had authority to um, choose his actions, but he did not have the authority. This is very important to change the consequences of his actions. And human beings have almost unlimited authority. We've been given free will. Um, We have authority to a much greater extent than most believers in the gospel of the king even recognize. But the world created by God We have to really remember this. This is absolutely fundamental. You need to really write this down. The world created by God operates on certain fixed protocols or rules, if you will, that no human being can change. The design by which God's world operates is known scientifically want to talk about earth science, as Newton's uh, third law of motion. 
And in a nutshell, what that represents is for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. I'll read it again. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. The biblical version of this all-encompassing principle or law is located in Galatians 6, verse 7, chapter 6, verse 7. For whatever one sows, and that's S-O-W-S, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. So this, if you wanted to use some terminology, um, is a basic law of creation, and it's called the law of cause and effect. God's rules are not arbitrary. They are like design protocols which can be compared to physical laws such as the law of gravity, the uh, law of physics, the law of human health. The purpose of God's laws is to train man to obey as a means of explaining how man was created so that man could live in sync. That's S-Y-N-C. So that man could live in sync with his original design, his divine design. So I'll read that again. It's important. The purpose of God's laws is to train man to obey as a means of explaining how man was created so that man can live in sync with his original design. God set out laws to follow in order that human beings do not bring upon themselves harm. Human beings learn how to live in God's system of operation by obeying God's commandments. The law of sowing and reaping provides a limitation to the delegation of authority which is given to man. Now, the author in chapter 6 talks about King David and um, his falling by being tempted to enter into an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And um, he begins to, quite honestly, just misuse his authority. Um, not only did he have a adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, but he also arranges the murder of her husband when um, his plan to blame the uh, impregnation of, of uh, Bathsheba to somebody else 
And so this scheme, if you will, began to have multi-layers and get very complicated. But David ran into a foundational principle in the operating system of the world, which is this. Sin or disobedience to God's rules, God's laws, bring consequence. Even David, as a man after God's own heart, could not mitigate or lessen the impact of the outcome of his disobedience. And what's the lesson? Well, even David's authority as king had limits. David did have authority to choose his actions, but what David didn't have was the authority to change the consequences of his decisions and his actions. The author says this is very important to consider because the level of dominion described thus far seems to indicate that human beings have almost unlimited authority. The key word is almost. And in fact, they do have authority to a much greater extent than most believers typically recognize. But that authority does not override the principle that brought trouble to King David. The world indeed operates on God's fixed protocols, fixed rules that no human being can change. So we oftentimes hear, um, well, will God forgive my sin? And yes, if you're a believer and you're repentant, um, God is a God of second chances. Um, And he will forgive your sin. And forgiveness has a function, which is to remove the shame, to remove the guilt. But this fixed protocols of how God's um, creation system works is that you still have to live with the consequences of that decision. And let's face it, that is a learning experience. And I have been on the receiving end of that, and it's no fun, but I'll tell you, um, when your temptation comes around to re-engage in something that you have repented of, uh, the fact that you went through the consequences going outside of God's design protocols by disobeying God, you remember the consequences. And you say, uh, you know, I have lived through those, and I am not so excited about buying this suggestion from the enemy to again engage in disobedient and rebellious behavior against God's laws. So I was going to read to you um, something from the book here. It says, man's always trying to somehow get around from the consequences. Um, And the author here, David, I'm sorry, Don Ed Olson said, 
Abortion is a vivid example that is not far removed from the story of David and Bathsheba. So notice the cause and effect here that we, as we go forward here. Pregnancy is a result of sex. By passing laws that permit abortion, both men and women, people, seek to avoid the consequence of their sexual desires and decisions. By viewing abortion as some kind of birth control. The problem is that even when the child is gone, because it's now dead, they are, there are ramifications that continue along with additional risks. An alarming percentage of women who've had abortions experience symptoms of post-abortion stress disorder and a number of other emotional and psychological challenges. To say nothing of the fatal consequence to the child who is now deceased. Yet those who do not want to take responsibility for their behaviors, and this includes the fathers as much as the pregnant women, have convinced themselves they have a right, that they have a right to do whatever they want to do. And the author has listed here in quotes, my body, my choice. And they have convinced themselves that the consequences can be eliminated if enough laws are passed by man and enough of the critics are silenced to abolish any conscious thought of health risks. Yet nevertheless, the consequences remain. Sowing and reaping, it is a law. It's an immutable law. A plethora, I'm going back to page 47 here, a plethora of other examples can be enumerated with the same result. Adulterous relationships, gender identity issues, homosexuality, and any other number of social issues promoted by those who crusade for the right to do and the right to decide whatever a person wants to do inevitably results in consequences. As done as does any sin committed by any person, regardless of religious affiliation or political persuasion or sexual orientation or ethnicity or gender, to claim that one was, quote, born that way does not change the reality that sin is a design deviation. It only highlights that something went wrong at some point, which is what happens in a sinful world, a fallen world. Problems result from defiance of God's original design and not living in sync with that. This remains as true for the Christian who willfully pursues his personal desires as well as the hardened atheist. 
It's a universal law that applies to everyone. Mankind does not want to submit to these protocols, acting as though he is God. Well, then he must do two things. Number one, man must find justification by twisting the interpretation of what the Bible says to fit his own preference. Or man must disregard the Bible altogether, asserting that the Bible is either irrelevant or mythological or quite simply just wrong. And then the last step man must set out to silence anyone who points out that the consequences of the sin still are there. The consequences still remain. And that result will result in persecution of the person who points that out. It should be noted as well that this reality answers a frequent question which is asked about suffering. If God is a loving God, why does he allow so much suffering Why does God allow disease? Why does God allow birth defects? Why does God allow war? Why does he allow abuse? Why does he allow hunger? Why does he allow injustice? The author says the answer should be obvious. He does not. He doesn't. He put human beings in charge of an operating system that cannot be arbitrarily changed or altered without violating his own creation and his own natural sense of order. Remember, we talked about God's kingdom being evidenced by order and life. It is human beings who allow suffering. It is human beings who behave in ways that compromise their immune systems and thus result in disease. It is human beings who perpetrate war. It is human beings who abuse. It is human beings who allow hunger. It is human beings who practice injustice. It is human beings who act in a blatant disregard to their own design protocols, thus attempting to blame the suffering, the resulting suffering, on God. But it is human beings who hold both the authority and the responsibility And their choices affect themselves and the world around them. In the end, morality is not to be determined by the general consensus of the majority, but rather by the natural fruit of selected chosen behaviors. What happens is, If we sow the wind, we reap the whirlwind. I believe that's out of um, the book of Hosea. But the opposite is also true. If we sow in righteousness, if we sow in obedience to God's design protocols of how we are made and shaped, well, then we, what do we reap? We reap peace. We reap the rest of God. That cannot be changed. 
no matter how pervasive the authority delegated to humanity is, God is not mocked. We will reap what we sow in either direction. We can reap peace in the rest of God or we can reap the whirlwind of the rebellion of God against God. It's up to us. It's a big responsibility. And I'll just end with this. I asked this author one time in a meeting. I said, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you believe that the dispensation of grace trumps the law, God's law, of sowing and reaping? And he didn't hesitate. He just immediately said, nope. We can be forgiven of our sins, but the consequences are still subject to that immutable law of sowing and reaping. There is a limit to man's dominion. Until next week, God bless you. And just remember, life is brought about through obedience to God's protocols. See you next week. God bless you. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal His Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.